0: This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership.
1: Is there a whole new, you know, way of doing law that you and I are unaware of, but it's just kind of happening in real time without our profession taking much notice or, or, or being aggressive about calling it out?
0: Hi, and welcome back to Amicus. This is Slate's podcast about the courts and the law and the rule of law and the Supreme Court. I am Dahlia Lithwick. I cover the courts for Slate. And this week, the justices are launching into their holiday breaks. And we hope you're doing some version of the same in good health. We're going to spend some time on this episode of the podcast contemplating a worrying new phenomenon at the high court and in its jurisprudence, the slow evaporation of both parties to a dispute and also of fact-based trial court records. A court that is inventing disputes to create enduring doctrine is not a phenomenon that should go unremarked or unnoted, at least according to Sherilyn Eiffel, today's guest on the show. Now, later on, Slate Plus members are going to get to hear from Mark Joseph Stern about what was different about the 303 creative oral arguments last week. They're also going to get to hear a little bit of optimism in the Moore versus Harper Independent State Legislature arguments. Of course, when a case threatens American democracy as we know it, the bar for hope and optimism is pretty low. Plus, all the latest from the election denier coup-backing Christmas party circuit in D.C. If you are not a Slate Plus member, but you'd like to be, not least to hear bonus segments like this and never to hit a paywall at Slate.com, do head to Slate.com slash Amicus Plus. And to all of our Slate Plus members, thank you, as ever, for supporting the work we do at the magazine and here on the show. But first, this week we wanted to do something a little bit meta, but also ground ourselves in something actually very real. You may remember how at the start of this term, we had a curtain raiser with Mark Joseph Stern and Jay Willis from Balls and Strikes. And Jay urged us at the time, all of us in the business of writing and talking about the court, to stop covering just cases and to start covering issues and lives and the real-world ramifications of what goes on inside the highest court in the land. So this show actually is going to focus on facts, about lower court findings of fact, about cases in which there are no facts, in cases in which there are no parties or cases— or a record and what that means for the law and for our lives. To do all that, we are turning to one of the people I have long considered, both a meticulous lawyer and also one of a vanishing number of true grown-ups in a public discourse around the law that is sometimes reduced to the silly and the clicky. Sherilyn Eiffel is a longtime friend of this show. She is former president and director counsel of the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund and a senior fellow at the Ford Foundation. Sherilyn teaches law at the University of Maryland School of Law, and she is currently at work on a new book called Is This America? It's about the power of using race to explain constitutional and democratic life in this country, and also about why some of the most important voices in that conversation are persistently silenced. So, Sherilyn, it is a treat to have you back on the show. Welcome back.
1: Thank you, Dahlia. I'm thrilled to be here.
0: And I wanted to start, I know that was just the most meta, over-the-top, crazy, over-promising intro about what it is I want to (laughs) tackle today. But I thought maybe a good way in is your amazing new piece in the New York Review of Books about oral arguments uh, this past fall in the affirmative action cases, one out of Harvard, one out of North Carolina, In part because I think what you said there is maybe a good launchpad for this conversation. You said oral arguments really rarely matter that much until they really do. And your view of that oral argument is that it mattered a lot about the conversation we are having allegedly about diversity on allegedly the most diverse bench in history, but it matters for so much about this theme of who gets to tell stories and whose stories matter. So I wonder if, just as an initial table-setting question, and can you answer for me? I think oral arguments have been really different in the last couple of years. They are clearly longer. Uh, the court no longer does the questioning schedule you know the way they used to do it now there's a, a sort of a more systemized way of doing arguments they spill into two and three hours which is not what used to happen even in important cases i also think the tone and tenor are really different there is in my view uh, a lot of silliness leaching into them particularly last week in 303 creative and there's some rancor And some ugliness in oral argument. And over and above all of that sort of my general sort of visceral sense that oral arguments are taking a bad turn, people are listening. People are listening in now in a way that they couldn't when you couldn't get same-day audio. So I just wonder if reflections from you before we turn specifically to the affirmative action cases on what this change, this big change in how oral arguments are happening if anything, reflects about where the court is at right now?
1: Well, you know, Dahlia, I think you've first of all hit on something, which is that people are listening because they can. Um, You know, COVID obviously changed things dramatically. The court was compelled to have remote arguments. And as a result, many of us now were able to listen to arguments in real time in ways that we could not before. And that's powerful and important because, of course, it compels us to confront the reality that there was actually no reason that we couldn't have listened to them in real time before. It was just part of the tradition and kind of a creakiness in the court and resistance to change. So now we were able to hear these arguments. There also was a change in the way the court conducted the arguments, calling on each justice by seniority, kind of seriatum. And this, as we know, had the effect of apparently compelling Justice Clarence Thomas to feel that he needed to speak regularly, which, as we all know, he had not done prior. You know, it had been 10 years between the first time he spoke on the bench and the second time. I happened to be in the lawyer's lounge the second time, and it was in the Voisin case, which was about Second Amendment rights of those uh, charged with domestic violence, an interesting issue that makes its appearance again. And that was the second time he uh, spoke or third time he spoke, but it was, uh, you know, that was in maybe 2015, 2016. Now he speaks in every argument. And that began with the COVID restrictions and the decision to switch to calling on individual justices. So I think that's part of it. Part of it is that now you have all of the justices participating and you have a broader public that is participating. But I don't think we should deny that the turn of the court towards a more robustly conservative court um, since Justice Kennedy stepped down has something to do with it as well, because the conservative majority is prepared to confront long-standing issues of concern for them more directly than they were in the past. And they are entertaining challenges and sometimes encouraging challenges that bring before them some of the most contentious issues of democracy, inclusion, separation of powers, balance of powers, federalism that we can imagine in our system of government and our democracy. So the issues they're confronting are quite, quite contentious. And that is leading to some of the rancor. I would even say some of the silliness that you, I think there's, I think the one uh, quality you left out is there's some nervousness. There's some nervousness. You know, when you want to make big moves that change dramatically the entire trajectory of this country, that you want to make moves that change the fundamental rights of half the population, <laughs> um, you know, hopefully you're a little bit nervous. Uh, hopefully you you have some um, some worries about how it will be received. But I think it's also true, um, and this gets to the piece that I wrote in the New York Review of Books that as the court confronts these issues, it compels and pressures how we think about litigation and how the court approaches these cases and what's missing. You know, we see the court filling in a lot. And so a lot of what you're hearing, I think people think of maybe the justices are getting more aggressive in their questioning. I think that that may be true, but I also think that the justices are filling in for the absence of what we would expect appellate judges, and the Supreme Court is an appellate court, to draw on, which is, you know, the findings below the decision of the court of appeals. We see the court granting cert in cases, you know, without cases ever having been heard by the circuit courts. We see so many more cases in which there were stays or truncated review or just instances in which we don't have the full picture I think the court's approach to standing, which we should spend some time talking about, often means that there's a real question about whether there are live disputes before the court. So all of that is pressuring oral argument in a way that I think can be very positive in some ways, but also I think is exposing what is really happening in other parts of the court's work.
0: So this is such an interesting way of framing your New York Review of Books piece, because I think what you're saying in that piece and what you're saying to me now is... There are stories, right, that stories weave in and out. There's the story of the litigation, but there's also the story of the justices that inflects on that. And then there's the sort of story of constitutional history uh, and who gets to tell that story. And so I think one of the things you were saying in your piece is— It was a very important moment in the affirmative action cases because you had Ketanji Brown Jackson talking very explicitly about race and woven into that story was, again, her own story about race and the constitutional history of race and admissions at UNC. And you also mentioned the Solicitor General, Elizabeth Prelogger, talking really explicitly about gender and who gets to argue cases at the Supreme Court. And it made me think that one of the things you were saying is that there is the personal and the political. And as we've long known, those two things are interwoven. But only some people ever got to blend them. And that there was a really arresting moment in the affirmative action cases, where the people who were making this constitutional story personal were exactly, and I know this is what your book is about, the people who don't often get to make it personal, to don't often get to stand up in front of the entire country and say, as General Prelogger said, why are no women arguing cases? Or as Justice Jackson said, How is it possible that the descendant of slaves cannot tell their story, but the descendant of slaveholders can? So I wonder if maybe a little bit of what you were saying is that diversity matters because diversity allows the people whose stories are suppressed to tell their stories.
1: Absolutely. That's one of the huge changes that I felt was very much on display that day. We had Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson, who not only is the first Black woman to sit on the Supreme Court. But, you know, it's also from the South. And of course, one of the affirmative action cases is the UNC case. And so it did not surprise me that that masterful hypothetical that she wove had to do with someone being the descendant of enslaved people. You had Justice Sotomayor, of course, whose voice we heard perhaps most powerfully in her dissent in the Shooty case, talking explicitly about race, remember her essential rejoinder to Chief Justice Roberts saying in the parents-involved K-12 voluntary integration case that the only way to stop discrimination based on race is to stop discriminating uh, based on race. And in Shooty, which involved a Michigan referendum on race-conscious admissions, in her dissent, Justice Sotomayor said, actually, the only way to stop discriminating based on race is to talk about it, is to confront it, is to engage it. And so she's there on the court. And we had not heard Justice Kagan because she had been recused from the Fisher cases because she had worked on them when she was Solicitor General. And so when she says, but hey, what about the promise of America? You know, I thought America was supposed to be a place where the leadership of the country looked like America and that isn't that part of what this democracy is trying to accomplish? I mean, these were very robust presentations that these three women made that I think were really powerful and important that day. And if we didn't just have that, the diversity on the court making a difference, we actually had a really strong record in this case. And the record did not show what the conservative justices not only appeared to want it to show, but believed that it showed because their sense, their instinct is that that's what must be going on. And so you could see that there were two sources of information that, in my view, the conservative justices were not fully equipped to grapple with during oral argument. And what oral argument exposed is the way in which they're going to have to grapple with it if they do what many people think that they are prepared to do, which is to outlaw race-conscious admissions um, at, at colleges and universities. They're going to have to confront a record below, a voluminous record, that did not show what they believed that it showed. It did not show discrimination against Asian Americans. Um, and it did show a process of holistic review that is narrowly tailored um, at both UNC and at Harvard. Uh, it was, the findings uh, were made by district courts in favor of the two universities. Um, in the case of Harvard, it was upheld on appeal. I mean, these are normally powerful things that you go into the Supreme Court, you know, with as wind at your back, if you're the respondents. Um, And yet somehow, if you were listening to the argument, um, it was as though some of the justices either weren't prepared to deal with the record or record be damned. You know, our sense is that this just can't be right. So you had that and then you had these three justices who were offering a very, very powerful counter and a very rich, and kind of complicated way of thinking about what race-conscious admissions actually do. And then you had the SG, who also was able, as you point out, Dahlia, to weigh in on and and to bring it home to the justices by talking about, in the very well of the court, how these issues may play out in terms of what the public perceives and what women may perceive about processes that are open to them. So you had all of that. And then you also had SG Prelogger talking about the U.S. military and the commitment of the U.S. military to supporting race conscious admissions. Now, normally, conservative justices are all about deferring to the position of the U.S. military as it relates to their processes, their pipelines and so forth. So at some point you heard Justice Roberts say, well, what if we left the military out of it? What about, you know, what if we just decided this on the basis of Harvard and UNC, we left out the service academies. And then, you know, SG Prelogger say, well, you know, we also care about ROTC, right? Because we're building pipelines of leadership. I thought it was an incredibly important and powerful argument that illuminated all of this, that illuminated the importance of diversity on the bench, that illuminated the importance of a record, that illuminated the ways in which justices can be resistant to the record and ways in which justices can be resistant to what we have normally been taught are the weights that sit on the scales of justice, right? That normally if you've got strong factual findings and detailed factual findings by the district court after, you know, four or five weeks of trial and it's upheld on appeal, that usually counts for something, right? We learn something about standing that we can't be really sure about because we didn't really have testimony from individual members of students for fair admissions. Uh, We had some, some affidavits and we had some allegations made in the complaint, but we didn't really have enough for the conservative justices to be able to make the case that this harm they contend happens to Asian American students or others actually exists. So I thought it was really important for our profession not to accept the received wisdom that oral arguments don't matter in that case, but instead to actually recognize that this argument told us a lot about the justices, about Supreme Court review, about our own profession, and about some of the most contentious issues that we deal with within our profession that were all on display during that five-hour hearing.
0: I wonder if, before we turn to the incredible shrinking trial court record, because you've made that point on this show before, and I think it's really essential. And I think Actually, what you've just said is such an elegant formulation, which is as the justices or the conservative justices find ways to shrink or diminish the importance of the trial record, of the facts, what's kind of filling the void is the justices themselves, their own stories and their diversity. And that used to be kind of the province of the white men who were on the court That's a really interesting shift you've just described. I want to get back to this question of the ways in which the actual facts are are being made irrelevant. But before I do, there was a tiny piece of press criticism in the New York Review of Books piece, and I want to just read it because I think it's really in the theme of what we've been talking about all year on this show, which is how the Supreme Court press corps is, is missing the big picture. You wrote, having said essentially what you just laid out about why the oral argument was singularly important, you wrote this, quote, this oral argument mattered in tone and substance. Its importance may have been underestimated by a benumbed Supreme Court press, understandably focused on what is likely to be the court's decision. Something was different here. And I didn't Take it personally that you think that the Supreme Court press is benumbed. I think we are. (laughs) But I do think that this feels like it is of a piece with a critique we heard, as I said, at the beginning of this term about how the Supreme Court press is so focused on the cases as horse races that, A, nobody's covering the institution of the court. That's how it is that, you know, the activities of Ginny Thomas evade our notice and the actions of, you know, Samuel Alito flying to Rome don't seem worthy of us to report on. But I also think what you're saying is by covering the cases— as, you know, here's an, a story. I'm going to hive off this story. I'm going to tell you the story of the litigants and the litigation to, to date. And then you make the cases so singularly important. Then the, when the justices distort the cases, as we're going to discuss, that's all. that's all there is. All we can talk about is these distorted cases. That's the sum of Supreme Court press coverage, right? Is that
1: fair, what I just said? Yeah, I I would have to say that I think that is true. And I think this case was a powerful example of that. You know, it's it's all about the one loss record. And I don't want to suggest that given the consequences, you know, of whatever is the decision in this case or what was the decision in Dobbs or many of these other cases is not the most important. Of course, it is the most important, but it cannot not be important what the judges say and how they characterize the issues that are before them. Especially when they do so in a way that, um, as you suggested, distorts the record to their own ends. That's an that's an affirmative act that justices are taking um, in a public moment that should be of note. You know, um, I think about sometimes our clients. We were interveners in Fisher, representing black students at the University of Texas, black and Latino and other students of color, and so you know we brought some of the students to hear the argument in the case. And so these amazing students, I mean, I I still remember, I won't say her name, but one of the black students at UT who was one of our clients came and uh, I've always said, because of her, I have hope in our future in this country because she's so amazing. And all of them were just some of the most impressive young people I've ever met. And so we brought them, this was the first time they had been in the United States Supreme Court With all of its, you know, walking up the steps and all the stuff that makes it feel like something powerful and important. And imagine being a law student, you know, and having that experience to come and hear this consequential argument. And that was the argument in which Justice Scalia said from the bench, you know, maybe black students need to just go to, you know, a slower program to lesser schools. Right. And I remember sitting, I was sitting with the lawyers and they were sitting in the guest area. And of course, I wondered, should we have brought them? Right. Because I, I thought it was so cruel. It was so, um, you know, if, if you're leaving that day, what what would you get out of it if you're them? That moment of feeling so exposed and insulted in that way. I was sitting with our client in the Shelby County case with Earl Cunningham, you know, in his 80s, who had come up with the argument. And I was sitting next to him in the guest space. It was my first um, year as director counsel at LDF. And... You know when Scalia said, "I know what the Voting Rights Act is. It's a racial entitlement," and I felt, you know, Earl Cunningham clench up. You know, we had told our clients, "Remember, you can't say anything. It's the Supreme Court. You know, we we, we don't get to co-sign. We don't get to say, you know, preach. You know, we don't get to say yes, that's right, and or we don't get to boo and hiss, right? Because these are, you know, key issues for us. But we've going to, we're going to just, you know, preserve our decorum." Once again, that experience of hearing that, do you think that's unimportant, that only what matters is the outcome of the case? Of course, the outcome of the Shelby case has been catastrophic for our democracy. But what Justice Scalia said that day, the way he described and framed what most people consider to be the most successful civil rights statute in this country, without which we could not even properly call ourselves a democracy prior to 1965, and to describe it as a racial entitlement, that too was incredibly important and powerful. What those students felt was incredibly important and powerful. Everything that we're fighting for in the context of of affirmative action is to protect students from that kind of insult in their schools. So yes, I think that the failure to understand the people and the stories of the people whose lives are going to be shaped and affected by these cases is one of the faults of Supreme court reporting. I I get it. It's, you know, it's a voluminous record. It's, you know, all the things. So let me just switch to the trial record piece, Dahlia, which was really, you know, the core of your question. I was taught and you probably were taught the same given I'm older than you, but I don't think it had changed very much when we were in law school that Um, there was an actual value to litigation itself. That litigation was a crucible into which you put all this stuff. And by having the parties follow the same rules, present their evidence and their stories, and have an impartial decision maker look at all of this, listen to all the testimony, see all of the exhibits, and make a decision, we were getting as close as we possibly could to finding what was the just outcome and that the process of litigation itself helped us do that. In other words, just reading a brief or just having someone stand before you and saying, you know, the people's court, right? Judge Wapner, this is what I think, you know, this is what happened and this is not what happened. That there was something about this process of actual adjudication though, that itself brought us closer. That's what I was taught. And I loved litigation. I became a civil procedure professor. I loved procedure. And I still believe that. I still believe being put to your paces is important. We also were taught that there has to be a, an actual case or controversy in accordance with the requirements of the Constitution for Article Three courts to hear claims. And that therefore, each claimant must have standing. They have to be personally affected by the challenge practice. It has, The practice has to be traceable to the defendant's conduct and capable of being redressed. I mean, we have, there's a whole jurisprudence of standing. And all of that is designed to make sure that when cases come before the court, they're not only real, but they're live in ways that will allow the court to get the best information in making their decision about what is a just outcome. Now, we have seen the diminishment of litigation over many years, right? You know, the, the trio of summary judgment cases in what, 1984, you know, Celotex and the others that all... Um, expanded summary judgment was kind of the first foray into decreasing trials, not litigation, but trials. And we've we've seen, you know, the rules of pleading and all of these things have had an effect on it. And so trials aren't that prevalent in many um, major cases. Cases settle all the time. Um, People are encouraged to settle. I can even remember when I was a young LDF attorney, Um, And I filed a case in federal court voting rights case in Oklahoma. The immediate practice for any complex case was that they immediately sent it to the magistrate for settlement. Right. So whether you liked it or not, you know, you had to engage in negotiations. And surely we did settle the case. So that all happens as part of this system. Um, And so trials are kind of precious, um, especially in complex cases. And at LDF, we train our attorneys to be able to do trials because what our clients want is to be heard is to be heard these are people living in towns and communities where they believe and and where it is true that they their stories have not been told or heard by those who have power and it doesn't mean that every one of our clients has to testify it means they want a chance to bring to bear all of the information and evidence that tell will tell you the truth about what is happening in their communities because part of Racism and white supremacy is gaslighting. It's not really happening to you. It wasn't about your race. It's really for efficiency's sake. It's ballot security. It's voter fraud. You know, it's all that stuff. And so we value trials very, very much. And we value every hearing. As a matter of fact, our clients, you know, un, uh, without us asking, will almost always come certainly to trial, but they will show up at oral argument. I mean, I remember having. When I was teaching law school and, and doing civil rights cases, and we had an oral argument in the fourth circuit and the clients got up, you know, in, in Richmond and they got up at the crack of dawn and came from gotten on a bus from the Eastern shore of Maryland. You know, they come because their rights are finally being vindicated and they're being heard. It's one of the reasons why even when they lose cases, very often our clients will say to us, yes, but we felt heard if, if the trial was conducted or the hearing conducted in a way that they felt heard. So I get really concerned When I see cases in the Supreme Court that affect the rights of millions of people, especially millions of people who are among the most marginalized or who are among the least likely to have their voice heard in places of power and decision making. And we have those claims heard after truncated practices that did not allow that to happen, see e.g. the shadow docket. Or it was allowed to happen, and that record essentially gets wiped out, C-E-G, the shadow docket, or it's ignored. As uh, at least I heard in some instances in um, the oral argument in the Harvard and the UNC cases, it matters a great deal. And I worry that even our profession is not all that interested in this shift because I think our profession is largely led by law firm practice. And I don't know that they feel the same way, (laughs) certainly that I do or share that value. Because, you know, they're paying clients would like things to go quickly. And, you know, there there are all kinds of reasons why we, we may not share that sense of that value. But that is what we were taught in law school. And if there's been a change, if we've decided that standing kind of doesn't matter, if we've decided that trials really are not important. You know, if we've decided that if we skip over the court of appeals, that's all cool. I mean, are law schools talking about this? Are we teaching law students something different than we were taught? I would love, I don't, you know, teach at the moment, but I'd like to know, and I would think that deans of law schools, and I think I, you know, when I was on your show last time, I talked about, you know, whether or not you have to respond to a subpoena. What, What are law firms teaching their young associates? You don't have to respond? I mean, I just is there is there a whole new, you know, way of doing law that um, you and I are unaware of, but it's just kind of happening in real time without our profession taking much notice or, or, or being aggressive about calling it out?
0: It's so interesting, Sherilyn. I'm thinking that my complaint and certainly Jay Willis's complaint about the Supreme Court press corps is that we just tick the old WL column for who wins and loses which case. That's kind of exactly how case law is taught at law school, right? We don't talk about what happened to the record. We don't think about whose voice is heard and who isn't. And the times that I most have the Sherilyn Eiffel headphones dug into my ears is from that argument you made on the show about voting rights plaintiffs and that it can take years to amass evidence and then to try it, to have a district court judge issue pages and pages and pages of finding of facts. All of this is the power, the only power that civil rights litigants have, which is to craft a record. And it leads me to this question I have about another move in addition to the myriad ways you've now described of making that trial record go away. But also, LDF is often credited with, oh, you were good at finding the perfect plaintiff, right? You found the sympathetic plaintiff. And when Ed Blum does it... And he doesn't succeed with Abigail Fisher and the affirmative rights case. As you note in your piece, he just turns around and says, I need an Asian client. And that's the juggernaut behind these affirmative action challenges and many other challenges. And what he's doing is not just creating a sympathetic client in the fashion of what LDF used to do in the civil rights cases. I think your larger point is that these are shadow clients because all these Asian American students, as you point out in your piece, who face horrific discrimination, there's actually no trial record of that. So Ed Blum sort of has the outlines of the strategy of having a sympathetic client. Without actually trying the case or winning on prevailing on these claims, and I want you to talk for just a minute about how actually this isn't at all the same as the civil rights cases. This isn't the same because what he's doing is building this imaginary client and then finding some claim that may or may not map onto them. And certainly... If we're going to talk about standing, that's Lori Smith in 303 Creative. You find the client, you reverse engineer her professional life, and then you get the court to lift up her concerns, even though she has no reason even to be in the room.
1: Hadn't even created the alleged website (laughs) yet, you know, when she filed the claim. So let me start with, because this really sticks in my craw, which is the very cynical effort of right-wing legal activists to claim that they are just borrowing from the strategy used in Brown, and we can get to you know to that on the Starry Decisis piece as well, and 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 Justice Alito and Dobbs, everybody wants to use Brown as the example for why they can do whatever they want to do. So let me clear up the issue about the sympathetic client. When LDF was deciding who was a sympathetic client and who would the client who would have the best hearing, let me say first and foremost. It's because they knew they were facing a white supremacist system, including a judicial system in which any fault or failing of any black person who was brought into a process would be exploited by those in the process. So that's number one. Number two, that it was dangerous for black people to actually become plaintiffs in these cases. They knew what they were going to be facing. And so you needed someone who could withstand what was going to be coming at them. It's wonderful to talk about Brown, but if you don't know anything about the Briggs family and what happened to them, the Briggs family, the Briggs case was the South Carolina Brown case. If you don't know how they lost their jobs, how they were threatened and how they were compelled to move out of South Carolina, these, are, these were South Carolinians who lived the rest of their days in New York because they could no longer live there. If you wanna talk about Brown and you wanna compare your case to Brown, then you gotta talk about the Briggs family. So the selection of plaintiffs was about recognizing how black people were perceived and how white supremacists would distort any aspect of their lives that they didn't deem perfect. Number two, that it was dangerous. And number three, it was among the many plaintiffs that you could pick, right? It wasn't like, let's just create an issue and then find a plaintiff. If you want to go into the archives of the NAACP, uh, which are now digitized and soon LDFs will be as well, and you want to see the letters that were coming from people in communities to Thurgood Marshall saying, please come down here and help us. They're not giving us funding for the schools. If you want to see the case I talk about in the book, 400 Souls, about her in Texas and how after the the black school burned down and the white school promised the black community that they would have an equal school, that instead what they did was take the prisoner of war barracks that they had used to house German prisoners and say, this will be the new school for the black students and how Marshall had to come down. This is 1948, right? We've been doing just a few years before Brown to try ad- and address that situation. So he wasn't making up and LDF wasn't making up these claims. They existed. It was, if we are going to press this claim, We have to make sure we have a client who can withstand it, a client who can be protected, a client who understands what they're undertaking, and that will give us the best shot. So that is not comparable to, hey, I need some Asians because I lost using the white girl in the Fisher case, which is what uh, Ed Blum can be here heard saying on his presentation to the Houston Chinese Alliance. And it is not then, instead of finding that plaintiff. Creating an organization which purports to have 20,000 members called Students for Fair Admissions, and I don't doubt that there is an organization, but it purports to have 20,000 members. The only person listed on the website is Ed Blum as its president, and his email email is the contact (laughs) email on the website. So, no, (laughs) there is not a comparison between what civil rights lawyers have done and what Ed Blum uh, is doing. And if we were being serious about standing, then all of this would have would be rigorously engaged. You know, we don't think that it's worthwhile for us to suggest that there may not be Asian American students who are distressed about admissions practices. Maybe there are. But we were had no problem finding clients <laughs> who were students and alumni of Harvard who wanted us to come and represent them and become amicus in the case and have an opportunity. And we're grateful to the trial judge for giving us a kind of amicus status that allowed us to present actual testimony from actual Harvard students at trial and and alumni. So again, we're taking the whole thing seriously. We're litigating within the rules that the court has set, set forth, and we're doing it with excellence. And we're willing and prepared to back up our claims with the actual people who contend they have been harmed. So I think... That's the imbalance that I'm seeing. And then, as you point out, then we're in the oral argument, and we have justices who just fill in the spaces. Well, we don't have that testimony. Um, We'll just fill it in. It's really quite shocking.
0: You've mentioned the shadow docket. You've mentioned the court taking cases before they are ripe. You've mentioned cases that settle. You've mentioned all the ways in which we've choked off the ability to get facts to the court. And then I think uh, over and above all of that, you've mentioned standing (laughs) and the ways in which, you know, you don't have a case or controversy, you don't have somebody who suffered um, an injury. And it does make me sort of wonder... The justices are carrying so much water, at least the conservative justices, for Lori Smith when they sort of sit around and talk about, you know, how deeply painful and how, you know, deeply felt the injury to her is. And it re-raises this question for me of, if you are going to construct an appellate universe (laughs) in which facts don't matter— And facts will matter less and less because, as you said, we seem to be acculturated to, okay, everything just gets resolved on the shadow docket or we have cases that are not ripe that are being decided by the court. Um, Then it goes back to this who gets to tell their stories and oral argument, right? And the grievance of Justice Alito, you know, and the pain of Clarence Thomas seems to be the only thing that matters. It does Lead me back to where you started a little bit, Sherilyn, which is this question of what does it mean that, as you said, we now have the most diverse court in history, we have Justice Jackson, Justice Sotomayor, Justice Kagan, willing to step in and talk about their own stories and wait, and they're going to keep losing And they're going to be on the dissenting side. And so in a world where this is all going to come down to who gets to tell their stories, and we have this deeply diverse bench finally, but the stories that you are prizing, the story of Brown v. Board, of systemic, violent racial oppression are being told by the people on the losing side over and over and over again, Remind me why that still matters, because one of the things I have sensed so deeply this year, and I say this again, it's visceral, to hear the first Latina justice, the first woman African-American justice, to hear Elena Kagan with this critique about what democracy is meant to be, or are we not allowed to use diversity in choosing our clerks, and have them always be on the dissenting side— feels painful. Reflect on that for me.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it sure is. It sure is painful. There's no question about it. Um, I guess that's why I'm suggesting that we need a broader conversation about the Supreme Court. You know, basically, the conversation is purely about expansion, which I think is an appropriate subject for conversation. And there's nothing seditious about (laughs) suggesting that the Supreme Court be expanded. But I guess the question I'm asking, Dahlia, is where is our profession on this? That's why I'm placing it in the context of like what we were taught about litigation and why it's important, what we were taught about the record. Um, I I always, you know, that's the mantra is make your record. Um, I always said to to the young lawyers at LDF that, you know, I didn't even know if I was a good trial lawyer until I took my case on appeal and I had to live with the record I'd made you know cuz you think all these things right you get up to the court of appeals and and you you know you've filed your notice of appeal and now you're ready and when you get the actual transcript and the you know and you're dealing with the record and the exhibits and you you're like I thought I asked that question <laughs> you, know, but you didn't ask that question you know you, you that's kind of part of the process of practice and so I think I guess I'm challenging our entire profession i'm of course distressed by the behavior of some of the justices and i will just say That's why we're in hypothetical world. The reason why there were so many hypotheticals is because either there's not a record, right? As in the website case, really, that where we don't have an actual, you know, I I tried to make the website and two people came in and they told me they were going to have a a same-sex wedding and I told them I didn't and they stormed out. Like we didn't have a, you know, we didn't have a record. We had a record in Masterpiece Cake Shop. We didn't have one. Uh, here and so you just often hypoland. And like, also, what if, what if, what if we had
0: Charlie and yeah. Dave? We had Charlie and Dave in Masterpiece. Like we have no people. That's what I'm saying. There's no human beings. We yeah,
2: we had
1: actual real people yeah. who actually were trying yeah. to access the service. We didn't have that in this case, and so and what happens then is shenanigans, right? And the shenanigans are that Justice Alito, you know, I guess feeling he had been out hypoed by you may perhaps uh, Justice Brown Jackson, you know comes up with his own own hypo that you know was just so horrifying about y'all you, know, you know this joke on we don't see kids we you know we see a lot of kids in black kids in in Ku Klux Klan outfits. It's not funny. um his joke at the expense of justice Kagan was not funny. it was actually quite inappropriate and uh, admittedly, he's clearly nervous, but you know when you have a record and you are willing to abide by what was in fact found below. That's the four corners of what you are dealing with as an appellate court. And if you don't have that, or if you've decided to blow past it, as in the affirmative action case, in which Justice Alito, you know, says, well, let me ask this question, you know, which I, some, a lot of people are dealing with, I've heard about. We have a record in the case. What you may have heard, you know, over dinner or in a casual conversation, that's not in the record. We have a voluminous record about what actually happens. And so I think, what i'm disturbed about is the willingness of our profession and those who lead our profession to allow what i think of as a fundamental shift in the rules of our profession it's not just what conservative supreme court justices are saying and doing and what the outcome of the case is going to be yes that is terrible yes it causes me pain that the people who are playing by the rules you know are are losing of course that has been my profession so 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 maybe i'm not quite as shocked as some but but what I am disturbed by is the willingness of the profession. The profession doesn't care about standing anymore. Maybe it's working out for, for most people or those who are leaders of the profession or those who are getting what they want. They don't care about standing. They don't care about the record. You know, I would think uh, I run a, ran a pro bono law practice. I would think if you your clients were paying clients and they had to pay you for what it takes to try a case, which is incredibly expensive. And, and courts were just blowing that off with the shadow docket or uh, not letting you actually get to the court of appeals, I would think that members of our profession would be outraged. So um, I guess what I'm suggesting is that the moment I think we're driven to, and this is a whole section of my my book, you know, in which I talk about how institutions of civil society are are due for a forensics, is that it goes much broader than just what these justices are doing. We have a problem in our profession and we have allowed this. And um, th- the reason why people think that talking about the Supreme Court is purely partisan is because members of our profession who perceive themselves as benefiting from this conservative run on the tables are mum about the ways in which it undercuts us as a profession. And I'm not willing to be silent about that. And so I think that has to be part of the broader conversation. That's why talking about the ethics rules, you know, I got into a something on one of our new social media sites, Mastodon, a couple of weeks ago about this, when when people were saying, well, this is why the court has to be expanded. This is after the story came out in the New York Times. And I said, that may well be, but I'm actually not interested in an expanded court where people are buying buildings across from the Supreme Court and having dinner and using the Supreme Court Historical Society. I'm not sure. I mean, I love, you know, Chuck Schumer. But I don't represent Democrats. I represent black people who have been marginalized. I don't know that someone having dinner, you know, with Schumer or with, you know, some liberal organization means my clients are going to necessarily benefit. There are lots of views across the spectrum about a variety of things. I don't know that if I managed to get a case to the Supreme Court challenging qualified immunity, if the mere fact that Supreme Court justices, you know, were hanging out and having dinner with Democratic leaders, that that would necessarily mean they would rule the way I want them to. So no, I'm not prepared to just talk about the number of expansion without talking about these other issues that go to the heart of the integrity of our profession. And the ethics rules are part of that. So this is my concern is that if we get past this moment of profound crisis in which, you know, we may not even be a democracy um, and in which we're facing increasing violence and so forth, I'm hopeful that the work we're going to be engaged in is not just adding numbers. That the work we're going to be engaged in is talking about the ways in which the skewing of the court has fundamentally upended key aspects of our profession. And listen, if everybody's okay with not having standing rules, just let me know. (laughs) You know, let us know so we can play by the same (laughs) rules, right? I'm not saying that I'm a, you know, I, 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 you know, I stand for the way in which the Supreme Court has. If if you want Luhan to go away, please. Please, God, yes, let it go away, right? But just let me know and let other civil rights legal organizations know so that we can get the same benefit that others are getting. And and the, the danger, Dahlia, is, you know, I've said, obviously, our demer- democracy is in peril. Some of it is in peril because our political system is broken. Some of it is in peril because of misinformation. Some of it is in peril because of right-wing ideologues and white supremacy, And voters making insane choices like nearly electing Herschel Walker to the Senate. That's part of the reason our democracy is in trouble. But there is no healthy democracy in the world in which you don't have a healthy legal system and in which you don't adhere to the rule of law. So I try to do what I know best. I have lots of critiques of the media as well. But, you know, I'm in a profession and I will not stay silent about the way in which our profession is contributing to the unraveling of our democracy by not minding the things that make us important to upholding to, to one of the pillars of any healthy democracy.
0: Sherilyn Eiffel is former president and director counsel of the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund, senior fellow at the Ford Foundation, and teaches law at the University of Maryland School of Law. Her upcoming book is called Is This America? About the power of using race to explain how democratic life unfolds in this country and why some of the most important voices in that conversation have systemically been silent. Sherilyn, I could talk to you for 272 years. I want to thank you for um, always saying the thing that I'm— clawing my way toward but not quite there uh, and doing it in ways that never fail to blow my mind Uh, thank you for your work thank you for your voice I wish you happy holidays and a happy if not happy at least functional
1: 2023 (laughs) (laughs) I'm hoping for a lot more always optimistic (laughs) thanks Dahlia
0: and so now here we are at the uh, Slate Plus bonus section of Amicus, where newly joined Post Mark Stern is join. <laughs> so excited, Mark. All the people on Mastodon and Post were like, make Mark Stern join, make him join. And I was like, Mark Stern does not do what I tell him to do. But welcome to Post, Mark Stern. Uh, and uh, sorry about Twitter. Here's Mark. Hi, Mark.
2: Hi. Yeah, sorry to everyone else about Twitter, too. Twitter is 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 increasingly bad. And so I am hanging out with you and other friends on post and hoping that it does not also become bad. And Mastodon is too confusing to me. I can't, I don't know how to toot. That's what it's called, right? It's like it is instead in of fact a tweet. Called tooting. I yeah. haven't tooted yet and I don't think I ever will. I didn't know which server to join. I didn't know where to where to click to toot or who the gatekeepers were. It's just I I'm tootless. So I'm on post. You're and everybody can find me CL. there.
0: <laughs> it's, I, one tiny thing on this which is I was at a at an event um the other day, where somebody said, "Oh, I've been following you on Twitter for years," and I had to let them know that I was actually not on Twitter for years and only got on again in August. So my fondest hope is that people won't know, in fact, that we are on or off Twitter. And
2: then, <laughs> that- no, yeah, I think I think that's right.
0: Okay, uh, Mark. Uh, so this is the part of the show where we talk about the stuff that we couldn't get into the main show. And since we did not have a main show last week, I wanted to start with 303 Creative, if we could, which we previewed it last show, it was the case where a web designer wanted to deny services to same sex couples, had not yet done so, uh, and somehow managed to vault herself all the way to the US Supreme Court. My top line of 303 Creative, Mark, is it went pretty much as expected.
2: Yeah, I think that's right, which means poorly. We expected it to go poorly, and that is how it went. It was perhaps a little more ludicrous and offensive than we foresaw, but otherwise in line with expectations.
0: So let's talk about that a little bit. Um, I think that, rightly or wrongly, a lot of the focus was on Justice Samuel Alito, who was definitely – bringing out the full Jerry Lewis slapstick, <laughs> I guess you can call it that, uh, you know, implying that Elena Kagan, I guess, is knows secret things about Ashley Madison, which is where you sign up to have extramarital affairs, like joking about J-Date, joking about kids in KKK costumes with Black Santa at the mall. A lot of people, including myself, were very, very mindful of the fact that some of the, what felt like the silly hypos were a product of having no actual people denied services here. No faces, as we said on our last show. Do you want to talk a little bit about if you have some sense of, I I think we have to be fair and say, look, hypos are, you know, the coin of the realm. And sometimes silly hypos are evident in every single oral argument. And why, Whether or not it was fair that the outrage of myself and others, that this felt like it dipped into crazy time, uh, silly hypos, and that it took away from the seriousness of the potential wide-sweeping harms, whether we had crossed a line or just that folks who were watching are too thin-skinned.
2: Yeah, I I don't think it was just about silly hypos. You know, they they happen sometimes. People like them in small doses. It was— as you said, the fact that there was no live controversy here, right? This individual, um, Laurie Smith, the owner of 303 Creative, has never been asked to make a wedding website for a same-sex couple. Um, this is all purely speculative. And so there's no record here. There's no facts, really. And there's no kind of factual pattern for the justices to to run their hypotheticals against, right? The way a hypothetical usually works is you take the facts of the case, you look at what happened, and you transpose it to a new context, or you change the actors, you change the situation, the outcome, and you run that by the lawyer and say, all right, well, if we shift A and B to C and D— what happens then? But here it's all made up. It's all in the ether floating around. And we don't even know really how the Colorado Civil Rights Commission would have interpreted and applied this particular law to this particular individual. And that led to, I think, the the deepest confusion in this case, which is that uh, according to Colorado, and, and Colorado is the authoritative last word here, um, this law does not require Lori Smith, to design a wedding website for anyone. All this law requires is that if Lori Smith designs a template for a wedding website or anything else, for dog breeders, for a marijuana dispensary, for local politicians, if she designs a template, then she has to sell that product equally to all customers, regardless of their identity. And that is fundamentally different from saying that she has to engage in the deeply expressive conduct of building and crafting an artistic and individualized and unique website for a same-sex couple. Whatever you think about that idea, that hypothetical, it's not this case. And so what we saw during oral arguments was not only a spiraling of goofy hypos— But also an effort among the conservative justices to refashion the narrative of this case and make it something that it isn't, which, of course, gave you and me and a lot of people flashbacks to the Coach Kennedy case from last term, right? The praying JV football coach at a public school who was leading these massive prayer circles at the 50-yard line. The Supreme Court just reshaped the facts of that case to claim that he was engaged in quiet, private prayer. And I feel like they're doing a similar thing here, pretending this case is about something it's not because they want to use it as a vehicle to enshrine a very specific policy idea about public accommodation law. And they are not going to let the lack of facts or the fake facts stand in the way of that goal.
0: And if we turn to the other huge monster case last week, the independent state legislature theory case, I think, is it fair to say this one did not, in fact, go as anticipated, that uh, there was a lot more sense. I think both you and I picked up a sense that there was not a sure five votes to uh, do the sort of strongest maximalist version of independent state legislature theory and that the Clearly, John Roberts, not in play, I think, but that both Justices Kavanaugh and Barrett seem to be trying to creep their way towards some centrist position. That felt surprising to me.
2: Sort of. I mean, this case presents a range of possible outcomes that basically go from bad to catastrophic. And the question was, well, does the majority seem to be leaning more toward the simply bad side, or is it leaning more toward the catastrophic side? Clearly, Alito, Gorsuch, and Thomas want to go all the way. They want to cut state courts and state constitutions out of federal elections, give state legislatures free reign to regulate or rig federal elections as they see fit. Roberts, Barrett, and Kavanaugh are not there, but they may be somewhere along that spectrum. Um, You know, even Roberts, who has sided against this theory in the past in shadow docket cases, he seemed to to want federal courts to have some role here overruling state Supreme Court's interpretation of election law. And we should not lose sight of the fact that that truly is a radical proposition, that for 230-plus years, we have, as a nation, allowed state Supreme Courts to have final say over the meaning of their state constitutions and state laws. And Roberts, Barrett, and Kavanaugh didn't seem to want to go all the way to the, you know, theory behind the 2020 coup, essentially, which is what this, this whole idea is at the end of the day. But they still wanted the Supreme Court especially to have some power to step in and tell state Supreme Courts, you got this wrong, you didn't interpret state law correctly. And I, I that still worries me, and I think it should worry others, because Kavanaugh was certainly performing moderation and centrism. He was certainly trying to sound like the reasonable man in the room. But what he was really doing at the end of the day was endorsing rankist concurrence in Bush v. Gore, which would give federal courts massive leeway to reinterpret state election law when they don't like the way that state courts have done so. And, you know, that was too radical a position for Anthony Kennedy and Sandra Day O'Connor back in 2000. And now it's being presented as the moderate alternative to the catastrophic option. And again, I just don't want to lose sight of the fact that this is an Overton window thing. What was too fringe and crazy in 2000 to command a majority of the court is now being presented as the centrist option. And we're supposed to, I think, praise Kavanaugh for being so reasonable because he wants to go Rehnquist rather than going all the way Trump.
0: This is such a good insight, Mark, because it's reminiscent of the conversations we used to have before uh, the three Trump justices came on, where we would say, be mindful of what looks like a centrist middle position in this case, because it is actually far to the right of what we would have tolerated five years ago. And I think that's what you're saying, that we've kind of become victims of the expectation is catastrophe every time. And so we're weirdly grateful <laughs> when it's the, as you say, extremely bad, never before done, but non catastrophic middle ground. And this is a really good. Way to sort of, I think, make this larger point that you and I used to always say, please don't get sucked into the narrative Uh, that just because Roberts wrote the opinion and it's not, you know, the Justice Thomas's iteration uh, that this is a good thing. It's always creeping ever to the right. So I think that's a a great insight. It does make me slightly because of your focus on Kavanaugh want to ask about uh, the twinned issues that did come up last week and this week about. On the one hand, ethics reform, we had a hearing uh, at the House Judiciary Committee at the end of last week uh, trying to talk about whether some kind of ethics bill could be either extrinsically imposed upon the court or the court would could be uh, induced to uh, somehow – have a binding ethics code on themselves. I thought that was a really fascinating hearing, largely because it focused on this quote-unquote leak story uh, about the Hobby Lobby leak, where I think... On the show we talked about with Sheldon Whitehouse, the problem isn't the leak. The problem is that there are these, you know, years-long influence campaigns with big money uh, to affect outcomes. But that twinned with the story over the weekend that Politico buried way, way, way at the bottom was that Justice uh, Brett Kavanaugh went to a Christmas party with kind of a who's who of sketchy characters. Um, Are those two things of a piece, is there— Some way in which we've simply crossed the Rubicon and the conservative justices are now living in a world where, you know, no consequences, no concern for the appearance of justices. I think – Ruth Marcus and others noted, it certainly does happen on the left of the court. Certainly, we've had liberal justices talking at ACS over the years, talking to friendly groups. But it does feel like there is an asymmetry here in terms of what conservative justices are willing to do and who they're willing to do it with. Um, and it does lead me to this back to this question of ethics reform because it just feels as though <laughs> it's way too late to impose an ethics code on a court that doesn't seem to think any of this matters anymore.
2: Right. Well, they they tell us, the justices tell us, and their allies on the Hill say, well, we don't need an ethics code because you can trust us to uphold standards of, of, of impartiality and neutrality. And then they go out and party with people like Matt Schlapp, who I'm sure Kavanaugh knew when they both worked in the Bush White House. But Matt Schlapp later became a turbocharged Trumpy who was also a prominent election denier who made incredibly irresponsible claims of widespread fraud in the 2020 election and suggested that Donald Trump was the true winner. And, you know, those cases, some of them are still working through the judiciary. A lot of them are at the point of just sanctioning the lawyers who brought them. But, you know, for Kavanaugh to be hanging out with this election denier at a party, it obviously looks atrocious, especially on the heels of of similar incidents, You know, we we talked a lot about Alito and the the campaign to kind of infiltrate the Supreme Court by donating to the Historical Society. And just a few years ago, Kavanaugh appeared in a picture taken at the Supreme Court with Brian Brown and some of his anti-gay activist friends. While Brian Brown had just filed a brief at the court in an LGBTQ case that Kavanaugh was gonna rule on. And I'm not saying that Brian Brown like took Kavanaugh aside and said you gotta rule this way, or that Matt Schlapp you know dragged him into a coat closet during this party and said okay you have to you know rule for this party or this plaintiff or whatever but i i do think it looks atrocious obviously atrocious And that, the appearance is what the federal standards for lower courts, at least, are all about. You know, the goal here is to preserve public belief in a neutral and independent judiciary. And there are really strong prophylactic standards to ensure that even if judges are not corrupt, even if they are not engaging in outright ugly behavior, that they hold themselves to a much higher standard so that everybody can look at them and say, yes, these people are on the level. And Kavanaugh is not doing that. And Alito is not doing that. And frankly, I I think that the comparison between them and the liberal justices is really unfair. Um, Yes, it is true that people like Justice Sotomayor go to ACS conferences and speak. But I have been at a number of those conferences and heard her speak. And she delivers you know, to be blunt, the most anodyne set of comments. She quotes she at the last one, she quoted a Kelly Clarkson song. She fields the comments beforehand to make sure there's nothing political or controversial. She basically gives life advice. S- Sotomayor acts like a life coach at these events, which is great for all the young people in the crowd, but it does not hold a freaking candle to Brett Kavanaugh going to a Christmas party with not only Matt and Mercedes Schlapp, but also people like Matt Gates, insane Florida congressman. And so, you know, I think this, this Bloomberg article that talked about Kavanaugh's ethical issues, um, it didn't mention the liberal justices initially. It came out this past week and didn't say anything about liberal justice. And then there was a conservative pressure campaign on Bloomberg to add a both-sides paragraph to update the story and say, oh, but Sotomayor does this too because she speaks at American Constitution Society events. And I, I, it was successful. And I just think that's ridiculous and it's an effort to create an equivalency where it does not exist. And it's especially offensive to justices like Sotomayor who work so hard to preserve that appearance of neutrality and end up still getting smeared as though they're just as, you know, uh, reckless with their appearance and with their connections and with their partying as somebody like Brett Kavanaugh. It, it gets me. It really irks me.
0: It's so interesting because it does... Circle back, and this has been really top of mind, and when I watched the hearing in front of the Judiciary Committee last week, I was so struck by, if you've clerked for a judge, and and my judge, certainly Proctor Hug, who was uh, the chief judge of the Ninth Circuit at the time, who is scrupulously careful about this stuff. I mean, somebody tweeted, I can't remember who tweeted, my judge wouldn't even get into an elevator, uh, with some somebody who had a, a, an interest in an outcome of a case, and I felt like my judge very much uh, was forced himself and his clerks to keep him in check about any appearance of any impropriety, and it's such an amazing sort of lesson in what happens when. You don't feel that you have to check yourself. Your clerks, nobody around you feels that they have to check you. You don't have a council of people with whom to say, hey, (laughs) look at this uh, invitation. Should I go to this party? You're just in this kind of bunker mentality where you want to surround yourself with people who make you feel good about yourself. Uh, And this is so outside the scope of anything that can be ultimately constrained by ethics rules i mean the the argument on the other side is well they need to be able to pal around with their friends what do you want them to do like you know sit on an ice floe and knit and i think the (laughs) argument is this is not about ethics rules this is about a view of the judiciary that feels like at the very highest levels has just completely devolved into old old old-timey thinking about what judges do
2: yeah, I, I, I would pay a, a huge amount of money to hear John Roberts' thoughts about this, because he is a guy who does care about this stuff, I personally think. Doesn't come through in a lot of his jurisprudence about campaign finance, where he's like, oh, corruption doesn't matter. Bribing members of Congress is just how the First Amendment was supposed to work. But, you know, he himself does clearly try to adhere to higher standards than people like Kavanaugh and Alito uh, and Barrett and Thomas and, uh, uh, and Gorsuch, who spoke at the Trump Hotel shortly after he was confirmed. And I, I think this is one more place where you can really kind of carve out Roberts from the ultra conservative five to his right and say, yeah, th- maybe it's a little bit of a superficial difference, but he does believe in preserving this institution's credibility, and I have to believe that he is steamed when he reads Politico Playbook and finds out that his pal Brett has been hanging out with an election denier like Matt Schlapp.
0: And, and to be sure, Chief Justice Roberts was not at FedSoc last month when his colleagues were there.
2: He was and has not-, not appeared at a Federalist Society convention in many, many years, yep. noticeably.
0: One last beat, Mark. I think this is for the super, super insider folks, but I want to just share it. Uh, The Supreme Court announced this week that while the justices are going to resume announcing their opinions from the bench this term, that will not be live streamed for audio. Um, I was one of the people, and I've written about this and you and I have talked about it, who went to those opinion announcements long after nobody else was going, because I think that is some of the most important stuff that journalists should cover. We had Rick Hassan on the show last year talking about what we lose when we don't hear opinion announcements. Two- part question, if I may. One, what do we lose when we don't hear opinion announcements? Uh, and two, why does it matter and why is the court trying to keep us from hearing
2: this? Yeah, I mean, if it didn't matter, then the court wouldn't be keeping us from hearing it, right the The court knows that, these opinion announcements inject a lot of blood and drama into cases and decisions that can otherwise seem a bit bloodless and academic. Um, You know, to varying degrees, the justices keep their emotions out of their opinions, less and less these days. um, But, you know, they say a lot of stuff like respectfully and, you know, with great admiration for my colleague, I must vigorously dissent. But when that gets translated into a bench statement, and especially a bench dissent, it can sound and look a lot more fiery, a lot more viscerally angry, a lot like a fierce policy dispute that they lost. It can kind of look as though a senator who just lost a big vote on a bill is standing on the on the Senate floor delivering a, a furious speech about it. Um, I mean, it, it looks a little bit political, but it also just shows how deeply felt um, these disagreements are. And this is a court that in public appearances it, it, is trying to pretend they're all best friends, right? This is a court whose justices from Sotomayor to Thomas to even Alito in some of his public statements say, oh, well, you know— we get along, we talk about this and that, Um, you know, some of our opinions are unanimous. A whole lot of them are, in fact, you know, we only disagree on some things, when in reality, the things they disagree on are the ones that matter the most. And those disagreements boil over into the drama of opinion announcements. So of course, the court doesn't want us to hear that, because it would be immediately clipped and put on Twitter by me, And maybe post now, and it would be on C-SPAN, and it would make its way to NPR and the nightly news, and regular Americans who are not super plugged in would hear this stuff, and it would give them a deeper understanding of the case, allow them to maybe form a stronger opinion about whether the decision is right or wrong. We can't have that, right? We don't want the public paying too much attention. And also, it just shows that sometimes the justices are really furious with each other, and these are not nine best friends who have uh, cerebral debates in their common room. These are nine extremely opinionated and, to varying degrees, political animals who are brawling on the bench— quite frequently over their vision for American law and American policy. And, you know, I think the court predictably said, we just can't have that many people listening in on, on, on those kind of sessions uh, because it, it's bad for the institution and it's bad for the legitimacy of this court.
0: So funny, Mark, when they announced it this week, I was so struck by a memory I had from early on when I covered Sandra Day O'Connor. And she used to say, you don't need the texts of my speeches when I fly out and give speeches. You don't need uh, to know, you know, anything that I do off the bench because everything, everything that I do That matters is in the four corners of my opinion. And how we've completely subverted that, where you now have justices reading their bench statements that are, in fact, the four corners of the opinion. This is their dissent. (laughs) This is the opinion. And somehow the public can listen in on the audio of the oral argument and not listen in on them reading from their opinions. It feels like completely upending the kind of show-your-work theory of what the justices are supposed to show us and what they're supposed to hide. That's how I was thinking
2: about it this week. Uh, Like a a point-counterpoint moment, if I may. If you asked a justice about this, I suspect that what he or she would say is, well, our bench statements are not screened by the justices who joined them, right? So, And this is some inside baseball. If you write the majority opinion, you get to draft your bench statement and you are under no obligation to run it by the other justices who joined. And from time to time, bench statements will phrase things about a case, specifically the holding in a way that does not align perfectly with the written opinion. Of course, the written opinion controls, but I think a justice in this hypothetical would say, but we don't want people getting confused. We don't want people absorbing the opinion through that audio of the bench statement and then misunderstanding what we actually decided. But of course, if that is the hang-up, there's a simple solution, which is run your freaking bench statements by your colleagues before you read them. It doesn't take that long. And also, these, these audio announcements get released at the beginning of the next term, so people are going to hear them no matter what. And I just don't think if that is the reason, and I have heard that from some individuals who are um, associated with the court, that this is like a, a top-of-mind concern, that is so easily addressed, it cannot justify this rather dramatic rejection of, of transparency in this area.
0: Yeah, and I think, you know, more to the point, if the bench statement doesn't reflect what's in the opinion, don't read it, you know? Like, it doesn't make any sense. And, And we know, I mean, towards the end of his career, Justice Scalia was deviating wildly, even from the printed bench statement in front of him, in some cases, and saying things, you know, extemporaneously as part of the announcement. And I feel like the idea that because we can't, kind of control whether what we say or what we write in a summary of the opinion and how that conforms to the opinion, then nobody can listen to it. It's the same as the ethics rules. Maybe just control yourselves. But I don't know. Saying control yourselves is becoming so 2022. So I will find (laughs) some new theme for next year.
2: I will just add one thing, which is We know the justices are concerned about the public taking their bench statements too seriously because in the olden days, when justices did read their decisions from the bench, many of them would actually print out the script that they were reading off of and provide it to the press. But it was always stamped at the top with the words, not for publication. So you could tweet The bench statement line by line, but you could not like scan it and put it on document cloud. And that is just another indication that they are freaked out by these things that they themselves are writing and reading and do not want the public to interpret them as like the last word in a case, which just feels to me like a very helter-skelter way of doing law.
0: Mark Joseph Stern covers the courts, the law. Uh, the state courts, democracy itself, so many issues for us at Slate, um, and also the, uh, thankfully, the SCOTUS party beat so that the rest <laughs> of us don't have to worry about this. Mark, thank you so much.
2: Always a pleasure, Dahlia.
0: And that's a wrap for this episode of Amicus. Thank you so much for listening in. You can keep in touch at amicus at slate.com. Or you can find us at facebook.com slash Podcast. Today's show was produced by Sarah Burningham. Alicia Montgomery is Vice President of Audio. And Ben Richmond is Senior Director of Operations for Podcasts at Slate. We'll be back with another episode of Amicus in two short weeks. Until then, take good care and happy holidays.